and welcome to the Terrorism 360 podcast. My name is Gary LaFree, and this podcast is being brought to you by the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism, the START Center, from the campus of the University of Maryland. If you'd like to know more about the START Center and its programs, I encourage you to visit our website at start.umd.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter at start underscore UMD. Dr. Stephen Wine is professor of psychiatry at the University of Illinois Chicago College of Medicine, where he also is the director of the Center for Global Health and the director of global medicine. For the past 20 years, he's conducted a program of research focused on trauma and migration-impacted populations. His work has been supported by grants from the National Institute of Mental Health, National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, the Department of Homeland Security, and several other federal, state, and private funders. Dr. Wine is the author of more than 80 publications. His book, When History is a Nightmare, Lives and Memories of Ethnic Cleansing in Bosnia-Herzegovina, was published by Rutgers University Press in 1999, and his book, Testimony and Catastrophe, was published by Northwestern University Press in 2006. I'm also happy to mention that I've known Stephen for many years through the work he's done with the START Center. So with this brief introduction, I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Stephen Wine to the Terrorism 360 podcast. Thanks very much, Gary. Pleasure to be here. Okay, good. So, uh, Steve, we really uh, usually launch into this uh, interview with a kind of general question about how you got involved in the study of terrorism and violent political extremism. Could you briefly let our listeners know how you got interested in research on on these topics? Sure. Well, um, I'm a psychiatrist who's done work in global mental health with refugees, both in the United States and in conflict and post-conflict countries. Uh, And because of those interests, I was contacted by a law enforcement agency many years ago that asked the question, uh, why are Somali Americans or some Somali Americans joining Al-Shabaab, terrorist organization? And and they thought that maybe um, I would have some insight into that, coming from a very different space, you know, coming from the world of thinking about families and youth and, and community. And um, honestly, when they came to me with that with that question, I didn't know if it was going to last, you know, it was going to lead to something that lasted very long because I thought they must have ways of thinking about these things. But in fact, uh, they were very interested in thinking about the family and community and psychosocial and cultural dimensions of it. So so that began a conversation and um, relationships that have lasted to this day. Very good. So uh, you mentioned, of course, your background in psychiatry. I wonder if, could you, could you talk a little bit about how you think this background in psychiatry has shaped your approach to the study of violent extremism? I think that we've thought there could be some kind of relationship between mental health problems or psychosocial problems and the risk for violence. But that's a relatively uh, new notion that's, that's, I think, appeared in research in the last say, five to ten years. Um, before that, we didn't think very much about about that issue. And I just want to be clear that I'm not saying that there's any simple relationship between those things that, ex- that mental illness explains terrorism uh, or anything like that. Um, but we're talking about maybe there's an interaction for a subset of, of folks. And so 
that's one area where I think psychiatry speaks to to the study of terrorism. Another is in the general area of risk assessments. But then many other areas have uh, have come to light over the years. So actually, when when I was beginning those conversations with law enforcement agencies back in like 2008, 2009, I said to them, what I'm thinking of is something that we might call like psychosocial counterterrorism, meaning applying the strategies of doing psychosocial work, but towards the outcomes of reducing the risk for violence or terrorism. And I think that some of the things that we talked about way back when have come to be known under the moniker of countering violent extremism. And then um, I think we see in uh, many different areas, uh, both in the U.S. and internationally, that there are, un- unfortunately, uh, people who are exposed to a lot of social adversity, be it the trauma of war or be it the traumas of growing up in a troubled family that leave people with um, vulnerabilities that people who spread hatred can easily exploit. And I think that tree um, and mental health can uh, help to give us some, some tools for understanding and addressing those kinds of issues. I noticed you were careful to point out that you were not advocating as a psychiatrist for a, a particularly strong role in terms of mental health. But... Uh, do you think the uh, the sort of uh, attitude towards the role that mental health or mental illness plays in violent extremism has been changing in the last 10, 15 years, or do you think it's stayed pretty much the same? No, I, th- I think it's changed a lot, but but we still don't have answers to some really fundamental questions. You know, I think, as I said before, um, I'll say it again, maybe a little differently now, I think that we used to th- think about terrorists as um, logical, rational actors. And we used to think about terrorist organizations as being pretty good at weeding out persons who might, you know, have behavioral problems. But I don't, I don't, I don't think we think that way nowadays, because the nature of the persons who went and and joined ISIS in Syria, became foreign fighters, is much, much broader, is a much more open door than being selected by a terrorist organization. And also the kinds of persons that have gotten radicalized or otherwise drawn into some kind of hateful ideology uh, via the Internet, again, it's, uh, it's, it's like something you, you're, you select yourself for. So that means that... Um, it, it seems like there's a different cohort of folks that are getting involved in, in these kinds of experiences, which, you know, has led to the question of what, what could we be doing better in communities to, to help to identify those kinds of folks before they become foreign fighters or before they become lone or group actors of some violent ends. Okay. And- I want to. De- I mean, we will definitely get into some of the community responses in your work on that in just a second. I'm kind of interested here, Steve, though, in the sense that some people have argued that the growing emphasis on mental health or mental illness in this area is related to an increase in so-called lone wolf attacks or you know, people who appear to have radicalized primarily online. Um, 
probably heard that argument. Do you, do you lend any credence to that argument? Yes, I, I do. I think that there's some good evidence that suggests higher rates of m- mental health problems amongst th- those kinds of persons who conducted lone wolf attack when compared to others. But I think that um, I, I wouldn't only pin it on lone wolf attacks. I think that there's, especially given the rise of the Internet and the role of the Internet in spreading hateful ideology, and given the phenomenon of tens of thousands of persons going to Syria to become foreign fighters, the nature of what it means to be involved in terrorism has changed. So there's there's a whole space between being a lone actor and being a, a group actor. There's a whole spectrum of possibilities in there, and I think that it's in that space that we also find uh, persons with, you know, with perhaps higher rates of mental health problems or psychosocial problems. I, when I said earlier that we still don't have the answers, what I think that uh, one thing that I think we're looking for, um, if we really want to answer that question, is good comparative studies that would compare some of these different kinds of groups because we at present we don't have that we have we have rates of higher we have we have what appear to be higher rates in the samples that have gone on to conduct acts but um it's always a question of what's a valid group to compare that to you know the rates of mental health problems in the general population can be as high as 20 to 25 percent. So um, what's elevated and what isn't, Mm -hmm. I think, is something that has not yet been definitively answered. Yeah, that's a very fair observation, I think. So uh, in in talking about these uh, phenomena, I've, I guess, been dancing around a little bit between the term terrorism and the term violent extremism. I just wonder if, do you draw a distinction between those two terms? Do you think is there a distinction and is it an important distinction? I think it is. I think we still have we still face a lot of definitional um struggles in 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 our field and what I think that the term terrorism is done excuse me the term violent extremism is done has um has again o- opened up a space for thinking and for acting differently about this problem. So I, I think that we think about extremism kind of independently of violence and and we think about the relationship between extremism and violence i think in the world of terrorism or we're looking at the world through the lens of terrorism it seemed like those two things were were completely tied together you're either a terrorist or you're not a terrorist and i think that the concept of violent extremism opens that up in a way that I think better matches to um, the reality that we see in the lives of people who are getting involved in this stuff. And it allows us especially to think about prevention because we can try to, it gives us the, I guess, the conceptual tools to um, understand the journey into becoming a violent extremist or terrorist. And we need to better understand that journey if we hope to help to stop people along the way and prevent them from getting fully involved in in terrorist violence. Okay. So I think so, it's important, important but un but unfinished. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough. And I guess, I don't know if this is a fair question then, but then having said that, do you think the United States is mostly facing a terrorist threat or a threat from violent extremism or both? I think that we're facing both. But the way that I approach it is I use those terms as different kinds of conceptual lenses for bringing to the phenomenon, not as Mm -hmm. entirely different phenomenon in and of themselves. And I see a lot of advantages to using the term, not just the term, but the whole conceptual package that goes along with it of violent extremism. So uh, I wanted to, to ask you a question about something, I guess, a little closer to my research space, uh, as a, you know, given my background in criminology. And you've written a bit about uh, community policing. And uh, I wonder, could you talk a little bit about the importance of community policing for combating violent extremism or terrorism? Well, community policing um, from has been a strategy that's been um, given more emphasis, say, in the last 10 years in addressing violent extremism for the reason that it's about trust. It's about building mutual trust between um, communities and law enforcement. Trust, information sharing, and cooperation between communities and law enforcement has been a real obstacle in addressing violent extremism. And the you know, established kind of best practices of community policing, which were not devised for the purposes of addressing terrorism, but other kinds of crime, um, have been believed to be um, helpful. Um, And so, you know, that's been a a big theme that local law enforcement and federal law enforcement and other government agencies have have tried to push. You know, it falls in the kind of general spirit of seeing the community as a partner uh, not just a, a den of suspects, but a partner who is also interested in, in, you know, in protecting against violence and who wants to cooperate with, with law enforcement in, 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 in to achieve those ends. So maybe we can explore uh, in a little more detail some of, the, some of the work you've been doing with communities. I know you've worked in the past with the Department of Homeland Security on a really interesting pilot project on countering violent extremism in three cities, I think Los Angeles, Chicago, and Washington, D.C. Could you uh, tell our listeners a little bit about, well, I guess for starters, why did DHS choose these three cities? And then could you perhaps tell us a little bit about the projects and how they're going? It wouldn't be right to say that that was uh, my project. Um, that that was their project. But I've had some exposure to and engagement in some of those cities through some of the research that I've been doing. But what the White House did in about 2012, I think, is established um, a pilot program to launch this idea of countering violent extremism in which they um, engage with those three cities, um, Los Angeles, Boston, and Minneapolis, to try to stand up initiatives in countering violent extremism working with local law enforcement, working with U.S. Attorney's Office, working with uh, community partners in all of those. And the experience in those cities is each different, and there's been lessons learned 
it's not a one-size-fit-all approach. I think that the idea was that local communities and law enforcement figure out what makes the most sense in their space. Uh, these are very different cities with very different populations and facing different issues. What's still in progress is evaluations of those programs. There are initiatives in, in all three cities that are that are underway and and also um, the work of evaluating their progress. I myself um, have been involved in evaluating the project in in Los Angeles. And I would say that we're still that's still a work in progress. In Los Angeles you have a a history dating back over well over ten years of really strong um, local initiatives by the Los Angeles Police Department, by the LA City Mayor's Office, by the LA County Sheriff's Office, and by um, really st- strong um, community partners that they have to address issues of hate crimes, of violence, of an overall community um, wellness. On top of that, um, you have more recent um, initiatives that have been funded by the Department Department of Homeland Security to um, do what they call off-ramp or uh, early interventions, which are specifically trying to help persons who be involved in hatred or violence and to try to help them to get off that path before committing some kind of act. And so those are the programs that are currently in the process of being developed and that we're trying to work in partnership with to assess. And do you think it's too early in the process to have an opinion about whether these programs are working? Do you have some evidence that they're successful? It is too early to say that, yes. But I would say that one thing that's going on in Los Angeles is there's existing uh, programs to address violence in schools, like the issue of school shooting, and to address other kinds of community violence that have been that are believed to be very effective. What we what we hope to bring to those um, strong practices is a more formal evaluation. And again, maybe it's too early to say this, but if you're uh, going to explain to our listeners, are there, from what you've seen so far, are there uh, aspects of these community-level programs that you know you think have failed and that you'd recommend, you know, sort of not be used as a basis for moving forward? I could say that um, one really important principle is that that it's so important for for the community and for um, health and mental health professionals and for law enforcement to be on the same page. When they're not on the same page, then there's such opportunities for not making the connections. So one of the things that we're concerned about is do ordinary, you know, citizens know who to reach out to and, and how, how to get help for their, for their loved one that they might be concerned about. You know, do they have an, do they have the information and do they have enough trust in local mental health professionals or in local law enforcement to reach out? We don't invest enough in communication. We don't invest enough in 
sharing information in a way that people could really make use of and understanding one another to address those needs. So I I think that um, successful programs have found a way to do that, and more of us need to figure out how to be better connected on these issues so that um, people don't find themselves isolated, alone, uh, with nobody to turn to. So maybe we can turn to another community that I think uh, you've done quite a bit of work with, uh, the Somali community in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, how you got involved with the Somali community and what sorts of issues have been raised there? Well, I was familiar with the Somali community from my work addressing mental health issues of refugee families, but then they popped up again on on my radar screen in 2008, 2009, after several young Somalis left their homes and went to join Al-Shabaab terrorist organization in Kenya and, and then went to Somalia. And so I, like everybody else, was trying to understand how could that happen? How could it happen that a young person who came here as a refugee with their parents, you know, to start a new life, would leave and go back to a, a war zone um, without even telling their, their parent. And we tried to take a deep dive into that by talking with people in the community. And so we used ethnographic methods to talk to parents and young people, including of the families that had young people that went to Somalia but also teachers and community leaders and faith leaders and law enforcement to try to get lots of different perspectives. And, you know, what we came away understanding was that there were, there was no one single explanation for what created risk for going over there. There were multiple different kinds of risks, and we learned to see risk as a property of the community. And... Of course, the community themselves knew that very well because what they were seeing was that many of the best and brightest from their community were those that were that were joining up with with al shabaab and you know it wasn't just a question of misfits or persons with criminal history or persons with mental health problems by and large, they were um high achieving young people who who joined up with us. Which is to say that whatever structure or relationships or motivations drew young people into this, it was, it couldn't just be explained at, at an individual, individual level. But what we also took note of is that there were many, what we would call protective resources in the community that mitigated against these kinds of risks. And those protective resources resided in community, they resided in families, they resided in neighborhoods, in faith institutions. And I think family especially is, is important. It's what parents say to young people about the challenges of growing up in this time and place for for a young Somali. So, you know, one of one of the things that I heard again and again from young people, they would say, we're the generation that's supposed to go back and and rebuild Somalia. The thing is that in their lives, 
they didn't really have that opportunity. Nobody, no, no government or or agency gave them that kind of chance. Aside from from Al Shabaab, they were very interested in in what was going on in Somalia. Their parents, um, who came from the war in Somalia and still had lots of stories and from those times and talked amongst themselves about their war experiences or current struggles over there. Parents didn't want to share that with young people, by and large. And so young people who would often watch on YouTube scenes of massacres in their village didn't often have their parents to speak with about this. I see this as as a problem, um, as creating a kind of risk. So who 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 was it who did want to have those conversations um with them? It was it was recruiters and and persons trying to spread more extremist messages. So a strength is a is a parent's ability to talk with their youth about all of these kinds of complicated issues. So then you know what that leaves us with is thinking that there are these pr- protective resources in, in in communities and families, but they could be further strengthened to address the kinds of threats that that these young people were facing. And so then we thought about in what ways could parents strengthen their situation in families, in what ways could communities help families, in what ways could government or other agencies help to support families and communities. And I guess I see that in these young people's lives, not only the danger of getting involved in violent extremism, but many other dangers. Gangs, which can be a large problem in in that community in um, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Um, drugs, um, dropping out of school, leaving their community. So there are many other kinds of problems that young people face. And I think it's very important, um, and we learned this from this, this study, that you not just see um, this one issue of violent extremism in, isol- in isolation, and that you think instead of what does it mean to build the resilience of individuals and families and communities against a whole spectrum of dangers that young people face. And I think that's where we should be meeting them and trying to help them. So a moment ago, you were talking about uh, the Los Angeles case, and now we hear the Minneapolis case. I wonder if, uh, how different are those two cases that you've worked on? Are they, we have a situation where you need to come up where each case is unique and it's hard to generalize, or are there some things that are similar in both cities? Well, both, I'm afraid. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, the Somali American community is, um, is a, is a really special community. And I'd like to emphasize that there are many outstanding people in that community who achieved great things in business and professions and sports and arts. Um, and we shouldn't forget that. Uh, but uh, overall, um, that community has struggled a lot with terrible uh, wartime experiences, trouble with um, single-parent families, with unemployment, with uh, living in difficult housing situations. So compared 
to you know the larger U.S. population there have a worse socioeconomic situation. Whereas many of the communities were a focus in Los Angeles were highly affluent communities. So that's one important difference. You know, I think another important issue that we should say uh, right now is that um, when we think about violent extremism and communities, we can't just think about one community or one kind of um, extremism. And we know that in our country, we've had a lot of problems with white supremacy-influenced violence, and this has led to you know, a large number of attacks and a large number of fatalities. And over the years, I think that um, other communities have gotten a larger share of, of attention by media, by government, by law enforcement. And I think that in, in all these different locations that we're talking about, we need to remind ourselves that white supremacy is a dominant and persistent threat that needs to be understood and addressed. So I find it interesting that you talk about uh, potential connections between youth engaged in violent extremism and youth in gangs and, and youth uh, get, that get involved in drug abuse. And one of the things I found interesting about your work in the Somali communities, you also note a connection between political radicalization and human trafficking, which wouldn't have been sort of obvious to me in thinking about it. Can, can you talk a little bit about this connection and why it's important? Sure. Well, at a kind of highly abstract level, I think we should take note that these are both instances in which young people can be taken out of the context of their family and community into a very dangerous situation. So we might ask ourselves, how does that happen in both in both cases? And are some similar um, kinds of mechanisms at play? Is there some shared set of of mechanisms that operate in both? And um, clearly, they're not equivalent. So, what's similar and what's and what's different? And so, that's something that we thought a lot about, and we tried to study in the Somali American community, which um, had some instances of both. And we found that, that there you know, were some common factors involved, but also different ones. It again kind of leads, leads me to the conclusion that when we try to work with communities and we try to work with law enforcement and we get them to try to work together on addressing the things that are threatening young people, we should look for common themes. We should try to engage people around what are protective factors that are going to mitigate against a whole host of different different threats. I think that too often times law enforcement or other agencies are trying to have three or four different conversations with communities about different kinds of risks and it comes out in a very in a way that's not very coherent or, or usable for families and communities. And I think we should try as much as we can to, to overcome that. And I think that I think that there's an opportunity to do that when it comes to addressing the, the threats posed by, by trafficking and by violent extremism and by gangs. Well, on a kind of, I guess, in a sense, parallel uh, note, 
you've written extensively, and, and you just talked about this a little bit in the Somali community, you've, you've written a lot on the impact of trauma and migration on individuals, on families, on communities, and now you're also drawing these connections for individuals, families, and communities with political extremism. So in terms of these two parts of your work, what, what do you see as the connections between trauma and migration on the one hand and political extremism and violence on the other? I think that there are some communities, by virtue of their experience of war, either they may not even be refugees, they just may be in a in a conflict-impacted country, such as Kosovo, for example, or uh, persons who've been displaced, that I think leaves them with a kind of set of experiences, set of memories, set of challenges that create opportunities for different kinds of criminal or violent experiences to take root. I mean, so many good things come out of refugee and immigrant communities, and we know about that, and, and we shouldn't ever forget about that. But there's also opportunities for for people to get involved in, you know, problematic activities like like crime or the special kind of crime of, of violent extremism or terrorism. And um, I think that Persons who are trying to recruit those into hate movements or violent extremism know very well how to exploit those kind of vulnerabilities. In some ways, I think they know better than do mental health professionals or or other, say, social service agencies who are trying to help folks. And if you speak with recruiters, you hear them say, we know exactly who we're looking for and we know exactly how how to talk to them. So... What I'm saying, Gary, is that I see, unfortunately, amongst displaced persons and in post-conflict countries, just a, a lot of vulnerabilities that come along with those experiences of being exposed to wartime trauma or being being displaced internally or externally that, that are easy uh, targets for persons looking to spread hateful ideology or or get people involved in a violent extremist movement. So that what does that mean? That means that we have to think about how we can build the capacity of those those communities and say professionals, teachers, mental health professionals, health professionals, faith leaders in those communities to um, protect against that kind of vulnerability. We were already aware of other kinds of vulnerabilities in those communities. We were aware of vulnerability to alcoholism or drug abuse or or domestic violence or other kinds of, you know, more common crimes. But now, I think especially in the age of the Internet, where, you know, extremist ideas can spread really rapidly and, and access anybody, we have to think about this as a as a persistent other kinds of threat that we're going to have to be able to address. It doesn't mean that we forget about the other things. We have to address them too. Somehow we have to strike a strike the right kind of balance. And when I say we, uh, who do I mean? I mean I I think I really mean civil society. I mean persons from those communities. Those communities we hope, will acknowledge these kinds of risks and then um, take appropriate action to um, build capacity in their communities 
to address them in a way that is part of the broader goal of building a resilient community, building a healthy community. So uh, I, th- I think it's fair to say, Steve, that you're part of, a, a, I think, probably a growing group of individuals who have been approaching the study of uh, or work on violent extremism from a mental health perspective. So, and you've written a bit about this in your own work. So could you talk a little bit to our listeners about what you see as the importance of integrating mental health into programs for countering violent extremism? Why do you think it's important? I think that it's important, first and foremost, as I was saying, because we can't leave this job just to law enforcement. We, we need law enforcement and we, to do the things that law enforcement can do. But when it comes to addressing those people who are not yet in the eyes of law enforcement, they haven't committed any kind of crime, but for one reason or another, they could be in a position where they could get involved in, in terrorism or other kinds of violence. That's just not an issue for law enforcement. That's an issue for communities themselves to address. And it's not only mental health, it's also faith leaders, it's parents and teachers as well. But I think mental health has a special role to play because one, I think, as as I said before, for some people, they may have a mental health problem. It could be a problem of depression or anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder or suicidality or alcohol and drug abuse. In other words, it doesn't, we're not saying that it's a matter of um, a major mental illness like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. It could be one of these more common mental disorders that comes with social adversity. And so we need to have the capacity of folks to be able to identify that kind of problem in young people and help connect them with treatment. Unfortunately, what I've seen again and again, and I know what others have seen as well, is that a lot of the people who find themselves into this in this space of being on the verge of getting involved in, in a violent or violent extremist act have a mental health or psychosocial problem, but they just haven't gotten the help with that. They haven't gotten help from their family. They haven't gotten help from their teachers. They haven't gotten help from mental health professionals. And so... You, you know, you see them kind of isolated, and you want to be able to um, overcome that. So I think that the involvement of mental health people, I, I would hope, could assist in identifying and referring them. But it's going to take more than just mental health uh, clinicians, Gary. You know, it's going to take disseminating this kind of knowledge and awareness into into community, into laypersons or other kinds of community advocates. I'm talking about people in communities who are in contact with lots of other, uh, lots of other people and, you know, someone to whom, say, if we're talking about young people, young people would turn to help if, if they had a problem. It's, it's those kinds of people that, that we need to put this kind of knowledge into their, into their hands so that they can act responsibly as a resource for someone who might be in a, in a, in a crisis. I think mental health persons 
are good not only uh, being a clinician in an office when someone wants to come and see you, but but in also building the kind of community capacity that I'm talking about now, meaning training those people in communities who who could be that kind of resource. One name for them is um, that's been used in the suicide prevention field is the name of gatekeeper, for example. Mm-hmm. They're people who help to to you know, again, identify someone in crisis and help to connect them to someone who could help them. So you've referred a couple of times uh, in our conversation, Stephen, to resilience. And I, I know much of your work deals with building resilience against violence and extremism. Uh, what are the most important mechanisms for doing that? How would you recommend that we try to build greater resilience in populations such as the ones you've studied? I think one of them I've I've mentioned before, which is family. I think that family is the seat of great resilience. So if we're talking about young people, you know, when we're or people in the transition between childhood and adulthood, or people who are young adults, um, we're talking about people who who still need the help of parents uh, and other adult role models um, in, in their family to help them to make the right choices, to be informed. Think about really serious issues like discrimination and hate and violence and right and wrong. And so I think as much as possible, we need to um, strengthen the ability of parents to be informed and to have difficult conversations with their, with their children, including adult children, about, about these issues. And then, and then I think about the other levels of of people in communities who can help young people and help parents, from you know soccer coaches to faith leaders to tutors to artists, people in media. So I think that we need to think about all of those potential advocates when we think about building. What is what are the different levers of building resilience? So one is educate. That means to share information about, in this case, about what are the threats that young people are facing and how can they best um, address those um, through what strategies. Another lever of of resilience is connection, forming partnerships between different kinds of organizations and communities. For example, schools and churches and or clinics and schools or law enforcement and schools so that they don't in, only come to know each other after a crisis, but they know each other in good times and in normal times. And another lever of resilience is is equity, which means that people have adequate resources and there's not great disparities um, of resources in a community. Another level of resilience is shared positive narratives that communities have a a way of talking about their experience that emphasizes values, history, memories, relationships, traditions um, that they want to be proud of. And here that shines a light on, on media because many times what happens in our in our media driven culture is that very negative stories about communities um, come to be told 
and those and those could have a way of really um, undermining uh, the resilience of particular communities. So it's important for communities to kind of, as much as possible, push back against that and take command over over um, telling the stories that they that they want to share. So those are those are some mm-hmm. of the strategies, and I'd say that these are strategies again that are not not just about resilience to violence or violent extremism, but resilience to other public health threats, resilience in the face of disasters. So I think we should really be thinking about building resilient communities in general, which includes concern about violent extremism, but isn't single-handedly focused just on that. Well, we're coming up to the hour mark, and so I'd I'd like to close with a, a very general question. You've been studying these issues now for quite some time. I wonder if you if you were going to give some advice to policymakers in charge of countering violent extremism in the United States today, what would that advice be? You know, I think that we have to take a really um, honest look at the experience over the last 10 years. And there are some things that have worked out okay, and there are other things that have not worked out okay. And countering violent extremism was was meant to be a an alternative and supplemental um, strategy to traditional law enforcement strategies. And in some ways, I think that it has delivered on that. In other ways, it hasn't yet delivered on that. And we shouldn't be afraid to really uh, look hard and rethink what should be the focus of that moving forward. I think that one dimension of it which has been um, maybe not given the amount of attention it needs is really relying on evidence and science to um, tell us what works. I think that there's been good attempts bringing the you know the wisdom that that science can bring to this world, but I think that needs to continue. You know, sometimes we think that what we're doing really makes sense, but when we look at the evidence of did it work or not, you know, it, it doesn't turn out the way we had planned. And so I think we need to subject our work in this area continually to the to the rigor of science and program evaluation and then follow what that tells us. My other major uh, concern is that communities and law enforcement and government need to really work together, be in dialogue together, and be on the same page. And when there's separation between them, I think there's little chance that that good is going to come of that. And so I think now more than ever is the time where we need more dialogue, more understanding that's leading towards more trust. Very good. And I'm sure you're going to help uh, the research community get that evidence and also build that understanding. So it's been uh, really great talking with you, Stephen, and I appreciate you giving us this time. And uh, I hope our paths cross again before too long. Okay. Thanks very much, Gary. Take care. Terrorism 360 is a production of START, the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism at the University of Maryland. Established in 2005 as a Department of Homeland Security's Center for Excellence, START investigates the human causes and consequences of terrorism. 
If you enjoyed this podcast or would like to learn more, visit us online at start.umd.edu. I had lots of help in putting this podcast together. I'd like to thank Jessica Ravinius, Alexa Cotman robinson Sam Koralnik, Bo Jiang, Michael Becker, Kasha Yasko, Rachel Gabriel, and J.D. Hansel. <laughs>